Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Hey there, Avery. Great to see you as always. I am recording this from vacation, but I wanted this conversation to happen. This is the most important part of my week. So every other bit of relaxing can take a back seat. I know you were in Lisbon on vacation recently, so I'm just uh, following in your footsteps. I'm here in lovely Cape Cod where the lobster rolls are popping, but there's some definite stuff to talk about this week. And we have an amazing guest in Josh Hackbarth, who is SVP at DC Animation and also runs the NFT commercial development division there. And uh, I think he's really going to give us some insights on how a really large IP holder manages a ton of NFT and Web3 projects. So we're really excited about that. How are you doing? I am great, Sam. I didn't realize you were on vacation this week. So thank you for dialing in from Cape Cod. How's the Web3 scene out there these days? Uh, I've not said the words NFT or blockchain for the last four days. It's been glorious. Did you try to pay for your lobster roll with crypto? I asked them if they took Dogecoin. They said no. <laughs> you said, what is that, sir? It's cash only. <laughs> yeah, I told them I was the bald coin developer and they didn't believe me on that either. <laughs> so more to come in that. But, oh, I like that. Yeah. When our producer says we should create Cape Coin. So that might be the next thing that only gets you into the lobster roll place the Provincetown nightclub or one of the many dispensaries that litter. Yeah, well, I mean, whenever there's scarcity, there's an economic opportunity. This is why you make the big bucks, Avery. <laughs> All right, before we uh, talk to Josh, a couple of stories. Actually, let's combine two stories because I thought these both are very relevant to what's happening in the expansion of Web3, as you and I have been talking about. Both Ralph Lauren just recently had a big article that was released on their Web3 projects that really center around their activities in Fortnite. So again, as you correctly predicted, Web3 is expanding to not just be blockchain-based. And what I thought was really interesting about Ralph Lauren sort of diving into this, they have a couple of great NFT projects they've done. This is a build that happens in Fortnite where they there's a shoe you can buy, a $10 shoe which actually is kind of hot. I'll be honest. I looked at it and I was like, I would wear this. And then I see that they are making 300 physical versions of it. Mm. So it's kind of a connected physical digital product. I won't say the word. Thank you. I'd have to charge you. Yeah, but I feel like Ralph Lauren, and I know we're trying to get that team on pretty soon. I'm actually meeting with them next week also to try to get them to come on. But they've really been like embracing this, both from a gaming perspective, from an NFT and collectibles perspective, on-chain and off. I think you might know that team... What do you think they're up to in the Ralph Lauren world that gets them so excited about this? Yeah, I think 
Ralph invested early in building this sort of virtual economies team. And that's a critical decision from their leadership to staff a group who's responsible for this. I think a lot of times these initiatives are driven by like one passionate individual who might work within marketing or something like that. But Ralph actually has a team dedicated to this. I should absolutely get Alex on there. Funny enough, I'm having coffee with her right after this. So I will bring it up. Give her my best. And I think that that decision really allows them to be really strategic around the way that they approach different virtual worlds. So they've done cool stuff in Zepetto. They've done cool stuff in Roblox. They're doing this cool thing in Fortnite. They're connecting it to physical products. In the NFT world, they've done some things, but they've been, I would call them pilots. You know, they did something with Whole Suite that got access to an event, which I think was amazing, but it was also linked to their store launch in Miami. And it was also linked to them taking crypto at their Miami store. So I think that they have done a nice job of integrating their Web3 approach almost as a channel to their brand because it never feels like a silo. It always feels as integrated into their sort of brand messaging and brand campaign. And I think that's one thing that we're seeing a lot of brands start to shift towards is instead of launching these new communities, these new things like treating Web3 as a campaign, we see a lot more sort of treating it as a channel. And I think Ralph has done a really nice job of that. And, you know, without having an internal seat at the table, It seems like they're doing this for two reasons in the short term to drive engagement and relevance with younger demographic, because let's be honest, Ralph's core demographic is not Gen Z yet. So they're finding ways to appeal in this digital first reality to Gen Z and Sun Alpha. And then long term, I think they're paving the way to understand monetizing their digital assets and building a brand that's kind of digital first products, which I think is something that every single fashion brand needs to be thinking about. So I see that kind of playing out from both the short term and the long term perspective. The boots do look kind of hot. They look great. They look like Ralph, kind of like this 90s vibe. I didn't realize that they were actually going to produce a limited edition physical But I think that that's even a nicer tie of this thing that is born digital first that is manifesting on physical. And the scale of Fortnite is tremendous, right? Like that's a place where they know millions of folks who are in their target audience spend time. It is not niche. It is mainstream. And it links to something that can be a little bit more of like a luxury product offering in a small sort of scarce production. So I think it's a great strategy. And I love everything that they're doing as they continue to build in this like virtual economies team. 100%. I mean, the first line in the Vogue business article about this, which we'll put in the show notes, is about Ralph Lauren expanding its presence into Fortnite as gaming proves to be a long-term strategy for luxury brands. And I do think this is something, again, you've been saying this for a long time. I think we've seen, whether it's NARS, whether it's Aloe, whether it's Ralph, whether it's Balenciaga, who created their own game, Gucci, all of these folks, I think, are assuming that some percentage of this digitally connected audience is going to be a luxury product buyer soon. And as you know, Ralph has a lot of different lines. You don't have to go couture to be able to wear Ralph. So I think the idea of having, I mean, these boots alone are $250, you know, which is not super expensive compared to some of the other stuff out there. And Fortnite also, the last stat I read said that 60 or 70% of their audience is over the age of 25. So I think at this point, Fortnite is really a, a mass play, as you mentioned, at that size of an audience. So this is just a great distribution channel. UEFN, the opportunity to build your own experiences into Fortnite is incredible. But it also, I think, just sort of reinforces what we've been talking about, which is you can own a Ralph NFT. You can play in their game world. You can you know, buy a digital sneaker. You can buy a physical sneaker. All of this stuff is kind of the way that the consumer wants to experience a brand in the places they want to be. And I think that Ralph really proves this. One thing I want to get your take on, though, 
is, so it makes sense for Ralph. I also found an article that Claire's is also going into Web3. And now I didn't know when I clicked to read this article the other day, but their creative director is Nicola Formichetti, who was Lady Gaga's creative. And so he is like a big Web3 guy. And he is really trying to push Claire's into the spot where everything from utilizing AI to create characters they're using in advertising to pushing the boundaries of Web3 gaming to kind of utilizing collectibles as a way to get deeper and deeper with this young female audience. Web3 seems to be a cornerstone of at least where Nicola would like Claire's to be. Do you think that this audience of younger sort of female, you know, girls who are trying to get their ears pierced and wear kind of fun jewelry is as open to these tactics as the Ralph Lauren Fortnite audience? Yeah, it's a great question. And I want to give Kristen Patrick some flowers there. I mean, her partner, she's a CMO and she's spearheaded a lot of these initiatives. And what I love about her sort of style of marketing leadership is she wants to be the first to try things and to lean in. I think that's kind of her signature style. And Claire's has done a lot in all formats of digital innovation from AI to NFTs to metaverse and beyond. And I think that they're at a place of looking to reboot the brand and move beyond that kind of ear piercing only type thing. I think they benefited from a lot of the like 90s and early 2000s nostalgia that we're seeing just from a cultural side right now. And I think creatively and earned media wise, they've been like out punching their impact by doing things that are a little bit unexpected. They've also done a really cool experience in Roblox. I believe it was called Shimmerverse. And they've been playing in these places where the younger demographics are. So I think that their consumers are interested in this type of thing. They are interested in seeing players show up in new places. I think it's really interesting to see Claire's continue to lean into doing things at the forefront of digital innovation. And some of them really hit, some of them not so much, but they continue to sort of be at the forefront of digital marketing innovation and quick to react. And, you know, as AI becomes a tool that people use more and more, you know, they've mentioned utilizing ChatGPT, utilizing MidJourney for things like their advertisements, which I think is a bold step for a brand, as you and I have talked about. There's some danger sometimes in the idea of utilizing these language models that may be trained on other IP, but they seem all in on the ability of trying to do it. So there is something I think that feels really yeah, smart about at least levering into a new toolkit to talk to a new audience in a new way. Yeah, and everyone should also check out their new piercing. I think they've rebranded piercing to be like a pierced studio. And it looks very different than probably when you got your ears pierced. Um, I got my ears pierced at Claire's actually when I was 10. I think it was my 10th birthday. And I have you know a very specific memory of that. I think it's a memory that many millennial women have, um, but Claire's is back and they're fresh and they're catering to Gen Z and Gen Alpha. And that includes showing up in these digital first environments and realities and embracing things like Web3 and AI and everything that comes along with it. And a little alpha here, for those who may not know Claire's, they are trying to treat your ears the way Crocs uses gibbets to adorn your Crocs. So part of what Claire is doing is utilizing these toolkits to drive new design of earrings Fill up your ears with as many badges as possible. Okay, the final story I want to talk about before we get to Josh is one that I'm having a little trouble with. So I want you to give me your take on, which is as like a Gen Xer, but who also did a lot of reading as a lonely young child. I got really into kind of understanding the beat movement, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, etc., and there is a gallery which is debuting a collection, an art collection of Allen Ginsberg's photographs. 
But then they fed the photographs through AI to write poems in the style of Allen Ginsberg that now accompany them. This is not necessarily an NFT project as far as I can tell, although it is was done in partnership with an NFT gallery called the Verseverse. But it's one of those things, Avery, where I just feel like creatives throw out a lot of creative work that they don't want to see the light of day. And utilizing these tools to bring them back to life feels a little weird to me. I think about all of the archive that Prince had in his vault that he himself didn't want to release. And then after he passes away, his estate starts to release them. But he made a decision not to release those. And does AI now allow us to create a lot of mediocre creative work that the creatives themselves would never have wanted to see? It all just feels like a place I don't want to go creatively in the art space. But I wanted to get your take. Maybe you feel differently. I feel very much the same. And for anyone who has worked, you know, in a creative field, even in something like advertising, building a brand is about saying no a lot of times. And there are times when you say yes, but there's times when you say, no, this is not how we want to show up. No, this is not our vision or our voice for how our brand is going to live. And that happens times a thousand for really creative people. Like, you know, that perfection and that dedication to craft and that dedication to really something exceptional, I think is something that really separates like the truly groundbreaking work in a lot of cases. So I am very much on the same page as you, Sam. I think that's a slippery slope. I, in general, think that AI is going to create way more content and way more vanilla, and it'll make people really value like the blackberry pie flavored ice cream because it's just something that is different. And I see this already with like, you know, syntax and mock-ups, like they just start looking all the same because everybody's using the same tools and the same prompts and creativity is doing things different. It's zigging when everybody is zagging. And I think that we're going to see the next generation of really breakthrough creatives unlock a new level of creativity that is very much based around craft and around breakthrough ideas. But there will also be you know, the sort of baseline for anyone's creativity has gone way up. I just actually today got access to where a trusted tester for Google Cloud's new AI powered workspace. And it's amazing. Like I could say I'm having a meeting with Sam Ewan to prepare for Gen C. And it would like drop me up a list of questions, give like an agenda, all that stuff that would have taken me or my admin like time to do. All of that is just being automated. And we're seeing that in the creative process as well. Like what took you know, a week to draw the storyboard perfectly right. Now we can do it with AI in two hours and get it, you know, 90% of where it was going to be without human intervention. And I think that unlocks efficiency and it unlocks time for people to be more creative, but it also is unlocking this huge sea of sameness, which is what you're sort of talking about. And, you know, all of this can be inspired by people, but that's not a real poem from Allen Ginsberg, right? Like that isn't something that he approved. And... I think it'll ultimately make the true, like actual real life human even more valuable. That's kind of my hot take is like, there will be way more and it will drive down the cost of the everyday, but it'll drive up the cost of the real authenticated, you know, moment and thing because it'll be even more scarce and valuable. Yeah, I was reading a story about the artist Francis Bacon, who would get into really emotional states and shred most of his work. And so his gallery assigned an assistant who would come and take the work as quick as possible out of his studio so that he could at least look at it when he was not in an emotional state. But I also sort of love the fact that there's just not that much Francis Bacon art in the world because he emotionally at some point was like, it's not worth it. I don't want this out there. And he would, you know, take scissors to it or a knife. 
And that's part of what makes the lore of him as an incredible British artist. So there is something, I think, about letting it be only what it is and not having to create more. And to your point, yeah, this is not a Ginsburg poem, no matter how much you train it on a Ginsburg model, it's still never going to be that. It's kind of like a signature. Like, yeah, you can have a stamp of someone's signature and that's somewhat special, but like, it's the real Sharpie. It's that smudge. It's that real that ultimately matters. And it's the story that you met, you know, them at a club in Ibiza at three in the morning, which is where I meet all my celebrities. Did that happen to you recently, Sam? I haven't been to Ibiza in a minute, but well, what's not utilizing AI is all the questions that we came up with for our guest, Josh Hackbarth, SVP of DC Animation and NFT Commercial Development, who will come up right after the break. See you then. Josh, welcome to the Gen Z podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. As a Sam, we are so excited to have you here. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while as you have been pioneering so many sort of digital innovation initiatives on behalf of your company. But tell the Gen Z listeners a little bit about you, a little bit about Josh and how you got into your current role. Sure. Great to be here. Nice to see you again. A couple of things over at Warner Brothers Discovery, kind of half my job is working on our biggest franchises, so DC and animation, and shepherding those forward into the future. So that's kind of working across every division. It's kind of setting a North Star for what we're trying to do with things like Looney Tunes or Scooby-Doo or Batman, and being kind of the internal and external ambassador for those brands. And that actually led me to my other half of my job, which is spearheading our NFT and I would say larger Web3 efforts at the studio. And I've been in that role for a couple of years now. Josh, I don't know if everyone here knows what a franchise business is. Yeah. And Warner Brothers has so much IP under its umbrella. Do you want to just like talk to our audience a little bit about how the franchise business works, what that means when you say that you kind of run that uh, business unit? Definitely, definitely. So I actually grew up and was educated in tech. My first job was a programmer. I was a Java programmer, 2000, dot-com boom. And my first foray into Hollywood wasn't until about a decade ago. And I had no idea. I thought franchises were Taco Bells, right? Like, or something like that. They're franchises too. Right? They are. They are. But in regards to like entertainment, it's essentially brand management is what it is. And it's big entertainment brands and big entertainment franchises. And so what we do is, you know, while we might have a, you know, a Scooby-Doo movie or a Space Jam movie or something like that, we look at it as a much bigger brand. You know, how are we telling these stories across multiple channels? How are we planning out release dates? How are we making sure the right stuff is in development? And always kind of having a finger on the pulse of the community. So if we see fans heading in one direction, or we see there's a particular character that's really popping in pop culture, we embrace that and try to figure out how to make it even bigger. As a follow-up, Josh, I'm just wondering, I did go see the Barbie movie last night. And the thing that I was surprised about was how much leeway they were given with the franchise. I feel like 20 years ago, we would have never seen as much sort of subversive conversation around the brand itself that kind of was like making fun of. And so just how much leeway when you think of managing this IP, you know, fans are precious about the Flash, right? Or about Space Jam. (laughs) But consumer taste changes and as does creative sort of acceptance. So just like, how do you think about it through the lens of evolving a franchise to a more modern media conversation. 
Yeah. I mean, first, kudos to the Mattel team for managing the Barbie brand. They do an incredible job, and they did offer a lot of leeway in that amazing film. I very unfortunately did not get to work on Barbie because it does not sit in the DC or animation camp. But I would say, you know, kind of taking your question to some of the other franchises, it's a delicate line you have to toe. There are fans that are very passionate about what they grew up with, and they don't want to see that change. They don't want to see a fresh take. But you also have to make sure that these franchises and brands last for generations. And so without new storytelling, you know, they kind of falter, you know, and it's interesting. I talk a lot internally about how you see this and certainly not a concept I invented, but there's this concept called the nostalgia pendulum, which is essentially every 30 years brands reemerge. I'm probably not saying anything you guys haven't heard, but we see it in very real terms. So if I look at something like Looney Tunes, which was born in the 1940s, And it was only available in theaters, right? Like as shorts in front. And so kids were sneaking in and watching the shorts in front of movies. Then in the 1960s, it moved to TV. So those kids that grew up watching it in the theaters could now show their kids in the 1960s. So now those kids were inspired to create. And then you see a reemergence 30 years later in the 90s with Space Jam and Looney Tunes. I mean, there was nothing bigger than Looney Tunes in the 90s. And then you see it again now in 2020. And that's how we got the most recent Space Jam greenlit and new content and things like that. So you see kind of these spurs. But without those audiences seeing content that's for them, it just dies, you know, and we have plenty of examples of that as well. You know, our Hanna-Barbera library, like there's not been a lot of new stories in some of our deeper characters like Huckleberry Hound, which I remember, but only watching reruns. So we must bring back Huckleberry Hound. That is a good takeaway from this. (laughs) It's my mission. (laughs) I love it. So Josh, when you think about innovation as it relates to these historic franchises, what's your thought process on when to get involved in, you know, whether it's video games or collaborations or Web3 or NFTs or, you know, in-game integrations that you all are doing a lot of? How do you think about that? Like, when is the right time to play versus when is the right time to kind of sit on the sidelines and see what happens? Yeah. I mean, we're always thinking, I will say collectively, we're always trying to find new ways to bring stories to fans. I think... You know, I sit in a fortunate position where I can very much be future focused. You know, what do we want to do five years from now, 10 years from now, et cetera? You know, it's working with the kind of the commercial divisions on helping to navigate their plans and how we bring some of these to life. I think there's some things that are, you know, much bigger endeavors, like a feature film or a big giant, you know, AAA video game. Those take years and hundreds of millions of dollars of investment, right? And so you really have to have a lock strategy on that stuff. I think some of the other stuff where maybe it's more collaborations or inclusion and with other brands where we can listen to the audience quite a bit and make, you know, much quicker reactions to some of that stuff. And that's really fun to play too. So, you know, I don't think we're ever sitting on the sidelines. I think it's, you know, we're always actively engaged in the conversation. It's just sometimes it takes a long time to realize some of those plans. And Josh, you know, I think a lot about how those early films came to life and they were so much tied to the commerce of toys and lunchboxes and wearables and all of that kind of stuff. How did you or like when did you first start thinking about the idea that digital collectibles would be attractive? Because I assume that probably happened a little bit before this recent NFT boom. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been in the digital space for a long time as a company, you know, largely driven by our gaming division. And they do some amazing stuff over there. I think when it comes into the collectible space, we also have a very passionate fan base in the physical collectible space. Right. And so, you know, kind of back to my earlier point is trying to find our finger on the pulse of the community. You know, we saw 
digital collectibles emerging probably, you know, 17, 18, but they weren't necessarily NFTs, right? Like that terminology and fad hadn't really taken off. Where we really started to embrace it in a big way is kind of like when everybody else did at the Beeple sale in March of 2021. That was the eye-opening moment. Like, oh, this is a thing. For so many people, right? It was like, oh, this is not just a fad. This is a real thing. And, you know, we saw a lot of other great brands that we respect jumping into the space. And so, you know, we you know, kind of looked at our fan base, realized there was some overlap in kind of that underground tech sector and and love of our IP. And so we just, you know, wanted to test a few things. And I will say, like, it's what we're still doing. You know, I think everybody's still doing. They're trying to find their footing in the space. But what we love about digital collectibles and kind of where it's merging, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later, but is I think it's a very future-focused initiative, right? So, like, my kids growing up now, they would much prefer to have digital gifts or Robux, frankly. That's where they spend their money versus, you know, when I was a kid, I was growing up collecting physical baseball cards. It's a shift in collecting. I think, you know, that as that younger demographic ages, I think we're going to have a giant head start in understanding that digital space, but still very exploratory for everyone right now. I love that you just said that about Robux because, you know, it's sometimes abstract for people who don't have a kid who's into it or who don't know someone who's into it. But when you see that passion, you see that, you know, desirability of a digital asset, like with your own eyes for someone that you love and care about, you're like, oh, okay, you actually like, you really want this. This is a thing that really matters to you. And you'd rather have a digital item than a physical item. It really like is that aha moment that clicks. And, you know, I think you're exactly right. Everybody's sort of finding like, what's the right place to participate, knowing this is a long-term game, but there's also short and medium-term opportunities. So you and your team have done a number of projects that use NFTs. That's sort of the core of the experience. How do you think like fans have received these projects? And was there one that might've been your favorite? I love the Looney Tunes move. You were very early with that with Space Jam. And you've also done stuff with Batman, with Game of Thrones, Across all of those, how do you think fans have received those programs? And do you have a favorite one that like really stood out to you, whether it was your favorite because you loved it or you learned the most from it? Yeah, great question. So for a little bit of context on our structure, we work as a licensor. So we are not you know, producing the NFTs ourselves. We work with some great partners out there. That does remove our ability to shift at whim because you know it's essentially through a licensed partnership. But again, we've been fortunate to find lots of great partners and some that haven't worked, right? And so I think we learned from that as well. Our first foray into this space in a big way was with our Space Jam drop in summer of 2021. It was kind of the height of all the NFTs. You know, we wanted to do something that was kind of special, a little trading cardy, and really drive more eyeballs to the movie. You know, the concept of utility hadn't really been broached that early or that it was going to be such a big thing. And that was kind of a one and done project. And it was well received by both, I think, the kind of the Space Jam fans, of which there are many, <laughs> um, but also like where we were more kind of conscious about was catering to the people that were already in the Web3 space, you know, very early movers. And we wanted to make sure we didn't feel like big brand coming in and exploiting, you know, this move. We started off with Space Jam. We did another drop uh, a little bit later with a big event we had called DC Fandom, where it was a similar kind of thing where we dropped some free NFTs if you were to go see the latest in DC news. And then our first, you know, real revenue driving drop was with the Matrix in November of 21. And that was fascinating to see because we had no idea, you know, what it was going to do. It was our first kind of foray into generative art. 
And it just took off like crazy. Part of it was the timing of when it all happened, but also it's the matrix. And we know we have so many ways we can continue to tell that story in the Web3 space. And that's kind of the point in time where we started to take it a little bit more serious and formed my role and my team to dive in further. And so since then, you know, we've had some bigger projects. I would say probably the biggest one we have right now is focused on DC. Uh, it's around our bat cowl community. So we did a generative project and we ended up selling about 11,000 unique bat cowls. And that community has been, I can't even describe how amazing it is, not just from a kind of head of NFTs perspective, but just as a franchise lead, we're creating connections with fans that we've never been able to have before. And that's what we keep trying to do with all of these projects is what haven't we been able to do in the past because of X, Y, or Z, usually tech constraints? And what does this allow us to do, hopefully now, <laughs> but largely for the future, right? And, you know, some of the projects have been hard to maintain the expectations from fans, but it's just because you just get used to this immediacy of deliverables. And it's hard because the tech is a little bit further behind everyone's ambition right now. As always. But I would say, you know, kind of back to your initial question, I think the fan base has received it well to a point, right? I think people that aren't in the NFT and Web3 community, it's harder to win them over. And so we just keep trying to deliver new ways that we can do things that we weren't able to do before. So fun fact, the agency I was with in 2020, we did one of the first Warner Brothers Discovery NFTs, which was for Bird Girl on Adult Swim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have one of those. Yeah, during South by Southwest. <laughs> South um, by Southwest, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which was, uh, I think we did it as part of like a clubhouse audio drop or something yeah, like that. Yeah, You were ahead of the time, even for our own company. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was it was fun times. Yeah. Um, but I, I sort of pick up on something you just said, which was the tech still isn't where we want it to be. And I think all of us agree with that. But I think as someone who oversees these franchises is really interested in the innovation space. How do you think that these franchises evolve in these connected worlds? What would you like to see? And that either may be coming or that you hope someone else builds. Because that, like, even when you're talking about the Batman Cowell Club, like having this audience that's super excited, that's 11,000 strong, that is engaging with you in ways you weren't expecting, feels like a powerful opportunity to create just a deeper relationship. But Discord isn't always the way to do that, right? So how would you like to see this stuff evolve? Yeah. Um, Discord, I mean, we could talk at length about keeping those communities going. I'm in there a lot. When I say, you know, our ambitions are a bit further ahead than the tech is right now, I think how we see digital collectibles is it's eventually will be your own toy box, right? And much like in the physical space, I can show my kids all the toys that I played with when I was a kid. I think in the future, they will also be able to do that with their kids. But that becomes, you know, decentralized digital ownership. And that means you have to be able to have your stuff and be able to move it where you want to move it and things like that. And I think all the partners that we work with are very supportive and excited about that future as well. It's just really, really hard <laughs> to do that. You know, I think it's very easy to talk about blockchain as this big thing. But when you get into the weeds and be able to move things around, it gets really hard. Josh, I'm pleasantly surprised to see your view of like Web3 still remains kind of blockchain backed. I think the conversations Sam and I have been having over the last six months are a lot around how brands are looking at Web3 as a little bit more expansive. Like, you know, I will, I'll say from the Vayner perspective, bucketing in environments like Roblox into that as kind of like adjacent and aligned to the same principles that make the NFT community, as you described it, care so much about these digital assets. It's 
all about this ownable internet that can be personalized and has all these you know, components that are immersive and beyond what you can experience in today's websites. I think it's interesting that you say that your ambitions are ahead of the tech because I think for a lot of the stuff that we've done and we haven't had the chance to work together yet, the tech isn't the only problem. I think it's the consumer adoption, you know, and it's the chicken or the egg, right? Like, is it the consumers aren't adopting because the tech isn't there or is the tech not there because consumers aren't adopting this at the right rate? What's your kind of perspective on how you define Web3 and your role at DC and Warner Brothers Animation? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all witnessing an evolution in kind of the foundation of commerce, I guess. And I think if you want to use social as being the Web2 of it all, right? Like moving from kind of a marketing product and uh, content structure of, you know, the 90s, early 2000s, going over to kind of those three C's of social content, community, and commerce, I think we're seeing an evolution of those buckets again, right? I view Web3 as kind of the true evolution of what content means, what commerce means, what community means. That's why we invited you as a guest on Gen Z. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Oh, oh, it's it's three C's, yeah. Um, The community piece, I think, is probably the quickest to evolve, right? Like there's an expectation, a deserved expectation from our fans to want to be part of the stories that they love, right? Now, they've been doing that forever with fan fiction and things like that, and it's been unsanctioned, but how do we actually embrace some of that idea and help them help us form the future of the franchises so we're delivering what the community wants? As an example of that, as part of our Batcowls program, we did a community-created official DC comic book, which we've never done before. And I will say it was a very Web2 approach in it, in that it was email voting and things like that, right? And so that's part of it where it's like, you know, the essence of what we're trying to do, I hope with Web3 in the future, it will be much easier to execute. But we did bring the community along. They voted on everything from what villain should be in the comic book to, you know, what should the catchphrases be? There was something like 70 votes or something like that in the creation of this. And then we actually created a comic book. And so that was very new for us on the community piece. And that kind of flows into the content piece, right? And so you're bringing the community closer into the content. So it's like, if you think of it as a Venn diagram, those circles are converging more and more. And I think Web3 squarely sits in the center. I think there's going to be some stuff that we do as well that isn't quite all the way there, but has kind of the essence of what we're trying to do, which is bring the fans along yet still kind of navigating towards that North Star. And also, we have a responsibility to make sure that we're feeding the engine with revenue and things like that as well, right? And so it's a very fun evolution. I don't know where it's going to go. I want to pick up on two things you said. The first is an observation that the way you just described it really feels to mimic Web1 in the sense that Web1 truly started as community-first BBS systems and message boards. And then content came around. And there was a long time where a lot of brands didn't think commerce was going to ever be a thing. And then they came around to this with the help of folks like Amazon. And it feels like what you're saying is we're on a similar trajectory in Web3 because the community is the easiest part. Content is a little bit harder. Maybe there's better tools now than there have ever been. But the commerce side of how do you make this truly a business unit that could compete with some of the other business units that you work in is probably a little bit of a ways away. But I want to jump a bit into the other piece that you talked about, which was about the idea of co-creation. And I say that because I think, you know, I observe and participate in a lot of discussions with people 
some of whom think that we are going to be in a world powered by AI soon where we become the center of every piece of IP that we consume on Netflix and in comics and whatever. And another camp, which is the one I sort of more firmly sit, which is that great creators create entertainment for us and we get to be witness to that, whether it's the bear, whether it's the latest Flash movie. And that you wouldn't want to have those writers not be so smart and interesting and insightful and know their characters so well that they can't write a great piece of content that's going to entertain us. So where do you stand on the idea of co-creation? Because even the way you described it, which I think is great, it was still probably a set of 70 choices. Every one of them had been vetted to sort of fit within a narrative structure you guys would be comfortable with. And then the audience gets to say, I made that, which is incredible. But it's different than like that weird AI South Park thing that came out a couple of weeks ago where, you know, suddenly you're in a South Park episode via AI. So like, how do you think the future of IP, especially at the franchise level, is going to go when it comes to co-creation with fans? Yeah, a very broad and deep question, and I can only answer my little world of it, right? Um, But, (laughs) you know, I think what we're trying to do in regards to kind of Web3 and co-creation is find those opportunities where fans can have an outlet, right? A comic book is a great example for that. And to be honest, we didn't have it plotted out, right? We didn't have, you know, kind of, oh, here's the story. Let's make sure we're guiding them towards the one that we want to make anyways, which I think would be a very Web1 way to do it, right? And I think for this one is, no, we actually had, you know, the writer writing in real time after those votes, And we kept it very transparent with the community. Like, this is not rigged. This is, we're doing what, you know, the community is saying. And I think what's more exciting is as we get, again, further advanced with technology where you're doing more blockchain voting on, you know, some of these specific initiatives is we can reward those fans that are most active in the community, you know, and they can kind of show their community how active they are and they're participating and things like that. And so, you know, when it comes to, you know, I'm kind of floating around the loyalty word, but that really is, I think, going to be very exciting is as you're bringing fans further into your ecosystem, how do they feel like they're part of it in ways that we weren't able to do before? So, you know, we're far from anything I'm driving of, you know, turning the keys over on these stories away from our amazing creators to exactly your points, but more so how do you bring the fans in almost to a behind the scenes approach that we haven't been able to offer in the past. Or if we had it, it was, you know, a handful of people that could visit the set or something like that, you know. So access is the key there. Yeah, definitely. And you've probably done a lot of research into this. I know we're working on something in this vein right now as well. Fans don't want to have complete control because they still want the professionals to help sort of guide the story. At least this was some research that we were recently doing. It's like, they're like, yeah, I want to have inputs, but like, I don't want to write the next comic book line. I don't think I'd be ready for that. You know, I'd love to hear your perspective on the research you all have done from your fans. How involved do they want to be? Do they want to have a say? Do some of them really want to shape the story? Or are there some people who are like, I'm going to leave you all to what you're amazing at. And I'm very happy to just be like a fan and a participant. Yeah. Exactly that. (laughs) So you have some fans that very much would love to be right there with you, right? And they do want, they're very fully invested. They have great ideas, et cetera. Those are kind of the fans we're catering to is something like co-creating a comic book, right? Like for them to be able to highlight characters that have, you know, they would like to see more stories on is exciting. And we've done this in various ways in the past as well. I think there's a lot of fans that do just love everything about the brands and the IP that we do. And they're going to have opinions, 
on the choices that are made, but that's okay too, right? And so, yeah, it's like I mentioned with some of these communities that we've been building in the NFT space, these, you know, token gated communities, we're closer to the fans in an authentic way than we've been able to be before. Because before, like we've always had Twitter, we've had, you know, social media and things like that, but it's hard to find the authentic fans through that kind of the noise of those platforms. And, you know, moving over to gated channels and things like that, you know, you're having direct conversations with many of the creative leads and execs at our company. They just drop in and chat, you know? And so it's, um, you know, we joke about that within the community that, you know, we regularly call out usernames in meetings like of people that are participating. Another comic that we just dropped, our DC Comics team went through and just chose a bunch of usernames from Discord and put them in the comic. And again, like, have never done something like that, that personalized before. So you're very right, Avery. Full spectrum. And Josh, one more thing that I think is really interesting, you know, Avery and I spoke to Matt Sanders, who is the lead singer of Avenged Sevenfold. They've been really doing a lot of Web3 activity and really furthering music and the similar ways that you guys are furthering IP and content. One of the things that we talked about was the idea of, you know, a future where someone holds an Avenged Sevenfold NFT and another one from a different band and what could happen when those merge, which reminds me in some respects of Space Jam or like a Lego Batman or something like that. And I wonder, you know, the opportunity when someone holds Space Jam and Game of Thrones, you know, NFTs that you guys have been involved with, what you can do for that fan. And even just understanding the data that comes along with like folks who are passionate about communities that to most of us may not seem relevant. But you guys get to see that and maybe super serve them in some interesting way. Yes, you nailed it. Our dream is that we do have all of our projects connected. And that goes back to kind of the decentralized digital ownership that we were talking about earlier. And I think that's not just for us, by the way. Like, we're able to create better experiences if we understand our fans even better. And so, you know, are they fans of other IP that we have similar crossover to? I think it puts the power into the fans much more than ever before. So getting back to Web3 and knowing that Warner Brothers has a ton of beloved IP and knowing that you've invested in these communities and you continue to invest in them, even your execs are calling out Discord names, which is totally something that we do as well, too. Um, we're like, oh, yeah, here's so-and-so again. We kind of like know their patterns a little bit, which is amazing that that happens everywhere. Um, but no, you've got all this beloved IP. What are the next steps that you think need to happen in Web3 for it to continue to grow and be meaningful for fans beyond sort of those blockchain natives? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been a crazy ride the last 24 months, right? Or 30 months, just kind of watching this industry evolve so fast. And for those that lived through the dot-com bust in the late 90s, early 2000s, like this was so much faster, <laughs> like how quickly things kind of rose and, you know, kind of diverged. And I think it's a build time right now, not to use that cliche term, but I think it's, you know, really trying to remove the friction to participate in the space, both for consumers and for new companies. We actually just announced last week, we're launching a form of a accelerator or tech incubator with a company called Acme Innovation, where we're inviting emerging technology companies, largely in the Web3 space, to come to Warner Brothers, meet with our executives, do a little bit of a startup boot camp, and help us solve problems that we're trying to solve. And, you know, this kind of came about through a lot of the conversations I was having in the NFT space was, if only we could do X, Y, and Z with, 
you know, this division in our company or this division in our company. And it's very hard to navigate those conversations even <laughs> internally. And so we thought as a company, let's come together and say, okay, let's look at some emerging technology, whether it's in the Web3 loyalty space, whether it's in kind of embracing community management, that kind of thing, and see if there's things that can be applied across our whole company and then eventually the industry. And so I think it's investing in, you know, not losing sight in what this can be and what, you know, not just kind of the blockchain of it all, but as your point, Avery, the, the broader Web3 definition, what it could be and keeping your eye focused on the future. To me, that's really forward thinking. I think of you guys as a brand also to continually want to invite the folks who are building at the base levels sort of to help teach you guys what is it they're working on and let you inform them. Here's as a historic brand who has a lot of firepower behind it, what would we like to see and see if there's a synergy there? Yeah. I mean, what we look at is, I mean, again, in my position, I'm privy to a lot of really great pitches and demos and things like that of stuff that's coming. And, you know, a lot of it we'll look at it and be like, oh man, like this is amazing. I don't know what we would do with it. <laughs> you know, like, but it's just so exciting to be part of it. But then you start to overlay our great brands and franchises and like, oh, what if we were able to use this emerging technology to be able to allow Batman fans to experience Batman like they haven't been able to before? You know, it's this kind of continuous hunt for super serving the fans. And that's ultimately all we're ever trying to do is how do we keep telling these stories in new and exciting ways and celebrating the past as well. Do you think you'll ever go super degen like Batman versus the Super Yeti or CryptoPunk 4479? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's ways we can go with this. You know, I like to consider us part of the broader community. <laughs> you know, like we've done some collaborations here and there, you know, but I think, you know, some of the projects, we're just trying to do different things, you know, but there's so much overlap, even in our own projects. We have great projects with multiple partners. We have a trading card partner, Cartamundi, also known as Hero. They have a great product. We have our backhauls. McFarlane Digital just launched two weeks ago. And that community of fans is just going from one to another to another. Like they're encouraging, they're seeing, they're embracing, they're bringing in new people. And so, you know, you see that in Web3 more than any place I've ever seen it. I actually, I was doing a Twitter Spaces last week and it was with our partner Palm uh, or Candy Digital now, as well as McFarlane. And I think it's the first time we've ever done a public forum with two licensees of ours on the same conversation and it wasn't competitive, right? And so it's just, it's such a refreshing thing to see, like I was mentioning, see this power go to the fans. Like we're all trying to collectively build something better for everyone. And it's being driven by the biggest fans on the planet. Like I'm a huge Batman fan. I'm a huge Looney Tunes fan. Like, and all the people that work on these projects are definitely like drinking our own Kool-Aid on this stuff. Like we really love to create new stuff. Sounds like a really fun job and a really special role to be able to connect fans and emerging technology to do more amazing things for fans. So on that very positive note, um, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to chat on Gen Z today, sharing your invaluable insights in your career in entertainment and sharing the path that you've blazed at Warner Brothers in DC. It's really impressive. And we look forward to seeing more cool innovations from you all and your partners and as a side note, I think it's really nice to hear, you know, you give so much credit to your partners. That doesn't always happen. So I appreciate you calling some of them out and listeners check out some of these cool brands and makers that Josh mentioned. Awesome. Thank you so much, you guys. Josh, thanks so much. Thanks, Josh.
Avery, thank you for connecting us to Josh. That was a fantastic conversation. My first time meeting him, but been a fan of a lot of the projects that they released with DC. And I do think they were one of the earliest that I can think of of the kind of large IP holders to come into this space. So great conversation. Yeah, really great conversation. I think Warner Brothers was one of the first to sort of jump into this space and done a bunch of different things. I love how Josh called out some of the partners that they've worked with, because this is more of a license model than a brand model. And listeners, the reason that that's a little bit different is oftentimes these companies will license out to like multiple different partners. And it's like the communication is not necessarily driven from the brand themselves, but rather from the partners, whether that's a candy or some of the other ones that they've worked with to kind of manage even do things like community management. So it's a bit of a different model. And it was great to hear Josh's perspective. And I was almost a little surprised that he's still, you know, his perspective is very much rooted in like what I would call purist web three and believing in the blockchain and decentralization as a core component for how they view their strategy sort of unfolding that toolbox analogy he made. So I think it's nice to hear like different viewpoints on how essential that is to sort of the future of digital collecting. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder with a company the size of Warner, you know, we had Awana from Warner Music, which is a completely different company. Their gaming division is probably its own behemoth. I know they own or are invested in a large number of game studios. So part of it may be his purview really is to focus on the blockchain empowerment side of digital collectibles. And I think he also made a great case for decentralized ownership, which I think is something we generally believe in. Again, whether that's on chain or not is something that we'll find out in the years to come if it will continue. But um, yeah, I thought it was a really, really substantive conversation. I thought he was great and his perspective was really informed in how he is approaching the brand management of all of this historic property. Great perspective. I'm glad we finally got him on. I think it was, it's been about a year that we've been trying to like pick the right date and et cetera, et cetera. So super happy to have Josh. Great insights, great commitment to sort of true purist Web3 ethos. And they've also got a lot to play with, right? Like their IP is second to none in terms of what they can do. So I'm excited to see Warner Brothers and DC keep crushing it in all things sort of digital brand building, digital engagement, digital collecting. Yes. I don't know if you remember their Game of Thrones release didn't go great. I do recall that. But I also think they're a brand that learned, like it didn't stop them, you know. And as he mentioned, they're licensors. So I think that was with Nifty, if I'm not mistaken. I think that protects them a lot. You know, they're like, well, this is a licensor. And, you know, sometimes you love the figurines and sometimes you don't. Yeah. I think that's a bit of the nature of the business of being the IP owner. Sometimes you get the really nice stuffed toy and sometimes you right. kind of get the cheap, cheap one. And then you have to, you know, it's not that you don't love the character. But I think that that is actually not necessarily commonly understood for the digital collector ecosystem, that differentiator between brand and licensor. And I think we've seen that, you know, many times. A lot of these sort of NFT companies bought a lot of the IP. And for these, a lot of the entertainment companies, not all, but, you know, one of the reasons we haven't done a ton of work with them is it's always like this revenue share model, which isn't really how our business works. So it's interesting that I think they lean very heavily into more platform partners versus sort of services partners due to the nature of being like a licensing business. Absolutely. And that's a great point. I think the closer you are to the IP, the more you kind of keep the reins tight. Whereas as a licensor, it's like if they're meeting the goals of the license, then we're good. Whether it succeeds or not, we make our money. So it kind of is what it is, which is a great business to be in if you can find a lot of IP to manage under a portfolio. Exactly. All right. Well, with that, Avery, going to let you go. And look forward to seeing you next week. Hopefully seeing you in person soon. Hopefully you get to New York one of these days. We can do an IRL hang. 
We must do an IRL hang. <laughs> IRL Gen C needs to happen. We should do one at Vayner or your offices. Yeah, we could definitely do that. That'd be amazing. All right. With that, thank you, everybody. We will talk to you next week. As always, Avery. See you next week, Gen C. <laughs> All right. Bye.